You ready? Sure. <laughs> All right. So today is June 1st, Friday, 2012, and today it is my great pleasure to be sitting here with Rich Hickey. Um, I think a lot of people out there know Rich Hickey, inventor of Closure, uh, the major driver behind Datomic, and a good friend of Relevances. And that actually, before we jump to that statement, a good friend of Relevances, there's one question I have to ask you, which is, uh, what are we playing for intro music, Rich? Uh, for the intro, we have Lycanthrope by Thinking Play. Okay, cool. I have not heard of the band or the song, so I always look forward to hearing the, uh, the music that I haven't heard of before. So, um, to, I want to come back to the, the thing I said, which is that you're a good friend of Relevances, which is mm-hmm. certainly true. Um, you know, we were talking earlier, and you said, sometimes people think I work at Relevance. Right. <laughs> right, and this is the Relevance podcast. You know, uh... Previous to this, we've always had at least one employee on the show, other than me. And this is the first time that's not true. But I, but I thought it was still a really good idea because um, you're an important part of the relevance um, ecosystem. That's maybe not the right word, family, really. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're not an employee. Right. So I wonder if you could tell us a bit about what your relationship with relevance actually is. Sure. I have, uh, uh, well, besides being friends with, with you guys, right. uh, uh, I'm independent, but we... Uh, with relevance, we uh, we do two things together. One is Closure Core, uh, which is the organization we set up to support Closure's ongoing development, and uh, the other is Datomic, which is a joint venture between myself and Relevance. So and between those, it involves me and a bunch of different Relevance people in both of those projects. So. Right. Yeah. I mean, we've and we've. I mean, we meaning Relevance. You. We've known each other for something like two two and a half years now. Has it been longer? Yeah, no, it's, I think it's been it's been uh, it's been longer. Once Stu first started writing the book, I guess he introduced himself, and that was how we got started. Yeah, very appropriate that we are actually sitting at Stu's house right now. Yes. Um, so, so I want to I want to talk about Datomic for sure because that is clearly one of the one of the two very important aspects of our business relationship mm-hmm. with you is is Datomic, uh, and we talked to Stu a bit about how that came about. One of the questions that I asked him on the show was um, so. You're sitting around and you decide to write a database, right? And Stu answered that question for anybody that hasn't heard the episode by talking about how you presented the idea to him. And he said, that just sounds like something that we have to do. But I wanted to ask you, like, to to me as as an outsider, I look at it and I go, you know, it's just one of those things that if you're writing an app and you start writing your own database, you're doing something wrong, Mm -hmm. right? So how were you sitting there? What bolt of lightning struck you and said... There needs to be this database. I, I have to go and write a database. Why did that come to you as something that needed to be done? Um, well, I, I mean, having worked with many, many databases, I think uh, my experiences were the same as a lot of developers in considering um, working with databases to be something less than ideal in many different ways. And we all struggle with that, whether it's you know the impedance mismatch or... Brittleness in relational designs, or um, various other, you know, client-server you know, issues that make make that difficult. And the the bottom line is, it's just not well integrated into the process of application development. And uh, I think it could be much better integrated. Um, on the broader level, I think one of the things that was sort of inspiring is if you go back to the out of the tar pit paper. Um, the authors there 
you know, talk about this sort of idealized system. They didn't build it, but they were sort of thinking through what it could be. That involved, you know, functional and declarative programming inside the applications and some notion of, you know, a relational model for the data that you would use. And, um, but the details of how that might work were left blank. And in particular, the details of how change that either originated in the application or outside got integrated, you know, and you move forward. So this is, you know, no matter how functional your application is, if it uses a database, there's this giant chunk of state somewhere. And how well integrated is that in a model that's primarily functional um, and therefore striving to be less complex? If you just add a database, have you just piled on a bunch of complexity now and, you know, sort of ruins everything? And uh, so I think we can have a lot simpler relationship to databases. The other thing that um, was sort of inspiring in, in... in doing Datomic was needing to do a better job with time. Almost all the systems I've ever worked on used databases and had databases that needed to manipulate time explicitly. And since most of the data, well, almost all the databases that are out there are oriented towards update in place, as soon as you start trying to keep track of time and possibly maintain all of history, you see how much of a misfit that is. And that's really the fundamental problem I think that Datomic is addressing is um, update-in-place databases really don't satisfy the requirements of information systems. And the only reason why they exist is because um, the computers on which we first designed databases were really small. You know, they had extremely limited memory and extremely limited storage, and of course you had to reuse it um, in order to make anything that was useful. And that's not the case anymore, but why, so why are we still using those designs? So... You know, it's just a rationalization process of convincing yourself you might have an, a better idea that starts all these things, like writing a new language or a database. It's kind of an insane thing to do. Yeah, was they right? And now you've done two of them, which, and that reminds me of the other thing I want to ask you about. I'll come back to that. Which, so, so but, but was there like a moment where, where you, where you would say this was the genesis of Datomic? Was there some? particular system you were working on you finally got fed up and said if I only had this and then the light bulb went on or what what how did that go for you it's a, it's a lot similar to closure so you know before I did closure I had done you know functional style programming in C sharp I had built bridges between you know common lisp and java and I had sort of worked all around it and so similarly with databases I had um, implemented my own time models on top of relational databases um, tried to use object databases, tried to use triple stores, tried to implement triple stores on top of relational databases. And so um, you, you try to use what's already available. and That seems like a decent fit. And only by sort of exhausting that do you say, you know what, if, if we really did this from scratch, um, it could be a lot better. Um, but no, it's, these things are not moments. They're, they take a long time to simmer. So um, years it's been in, in the making. Okay, okay. I guess that's not surprising with something that kind of, in a sense, um, rebuilds from the foundation, that it wouldn't be one thing that comes to you at night. No, yeah. <laughs> so I, I, I want to follow... I wanna, so that kind of was, comes at Datomic from how did Datomic start. The other thing I'm interested in asking you about is... Um, you know, you've done a number of talks recently, which are excellent, and I highly recommend to people about 
how to think about problems. I mean, there's the hammock talk, mm -hmm. and then you've done um, a couple variations on simple and easy, right? Mm -hmm. the, the, the most recent one, I think, that's gotten a lot of attention is the one you did at RubyConf, mm -hmm. right? Um, was there anything in the process of building Datomic itself that evolved your thinking about, about those topics that made you better? Any specific thing that you, that you came out and said, wow, we really learned X about building software while doing Datomic? Um, I don't think it was so much learning something from scratch. It definitely reinforced things. And one of the most surprising things I think it re reinforced uh, is that for me, it seems more and more design has become a process of taking things apart. That you actually achieve new things and get new capabilities simply by taking something and making it into two things. And that means that now you have two things. You can independently vary them. You can move them. You can reimagine how they might work. And so, you know, Datomic is sort of a deconstruction of the database, saying, okay, well, look, there's all this stuff we glommed together: transactions, and query, and storage management, and atomicity, and uh, indexing. And what if we took these things apart? And what what could be different? And, and, and it is, you know, by taking it apart and combining it with a couple of other things, all of a sudden you can do something pretty different. Uh, so that, that's probably the biggest thing out of the Datomic experience was just design is often about taking things apart, not making grand master plans of putting things together. You know, if you take things apart well, you end up with um, recipes or pieces with which you can build many, many things. And, you know... That's what I'd rather design. I'd rather design, you know, decent Legos than one elaborate, you know, Lego building or, or castle or something. So I assume there's a key word in there, which is um, taking things apart. Yes. Well, right. I mean, because mm -hmm. it seems to me that I could walk up to a system and just bust it into smaller and smaller pieces until I had fragments of Legos rather than Legos. Uh, actually, you probably couldn't. I mean, I, I don't think it's just like a mechanical thing. I think if you were to try to take two things apart and they ended up needing to know about each other and you didn't succeed at taking them mm, apart. Sure. So actually, it, the simple act of taking things apart does force you to find the boundaries between things, to, to say this is part of this and that is part of that, um, and just sort it out. And uh, it, a lot of the work is right there. Are there any, in your opinion, is it obvious when you, when you achieve that? Because like, you just said if they still depend on each other in some way, if they still have to know about each other, yeah. then you haven't really taken them apart. So I right. can see that being the sort of thing where I would naively walk up to a system and, and say, oh, now it's two things because it's in two namespaces or something simple like that, uh, something easy like that, I should say. Is, there, is it easy to tell when you've really gotten the pieces into, into separated? So uh, um, I think it's relatively easy to tell when something is separate because you can look at you know, the fact that it doesn't have dependencies or things like that. And, uh, and so that's, that's one, one metric is just to see that it doesn't, it's not connected to anything. But then the second metric is um, you know, I'm sort of, uh, has, is what you're left with sufficient to do something useful. Mm. Right? So there's you know, sort of atomicity and then sufficiency. Uh, so you want to split okay. things apart but make them sufficient. Okay, that's great. That's a really good way to look at it. That's, I think that's really helpful. Cool. Um, so to, to change gears a little bit, mm -hmm. right, because I'm sure we could talk. 
And in fact, we're here at Stu's house. We've been hanging out, having fun with some, some friends. And we spend a lot of time talking about um, various interesting metatopics like this. But I want to come back to something that came up in the last podcast, uh, with Stu, that is. Okay. And uh, you, you should feel perfectly free to say, you know what? I'm not going to talk about that. That's totally okay. Um, but I think some people are curious, which is, you know, you, you, you said at uh, the first Closure Cons, you said, I've been lucky enough in my life to work on, to be able to think about three things, like, really deeply. And obviously, Closure was one of them. Mm-hmm. Clearly, now we know Datomic was another. Yes. And, um, you know, there's a third. Right. Um, can, I, can I ask you what that one is? And again, you know. Yeah, sure, sure. It's not, it's not a top secret project okay. or anything, but it's uh, machine listening. Okay. Right. Trying to make a computer listen um, in the way a person does. Interesting. What does that mean? Uh, so, you know, there, there are lots of ways to make computers do um, digital signal processing and sort of split apart signal and, and analyze it and whatnot. And most of those um, do not work analogously to the way the hearing mechanism works. And um, I think in... in being so far away from the way the hearing mechanism works, they're, they're missing on some important capabilities that make our hearing so powerful. <clears throat> in particular, there's um, a category of what we do in hearing called auditory scene analysis, where we're able to take you know, what is effectively hitting our ears, which is a complex waveform, and, and associate it with various entities in our world. You know, mm-hmm. that, that this sound is coming from someone sliding their chair, and this is some the sound of someone you know, talking in the corner of the room and, and there's a bird chirping and there's some wind and the air conditioner is humming. And um, uh, some of that is obviously higher level cognitive work, um, but it all is based around an apparatus at the bottom that is uh, substantially discrete, right? You have your hair cells in your right. inner ear and then they are connected to neurons and the neurons fire occasionally. Um, that's not a continuous system, and and yet it's really excellent at this job, much better than our software is right now. And so, it's a it's sort of hobby research for me um, to try to make a computer hear in the same way that a person does. And it starts with a actually a simulation and physical model of the hearing apparatus, and then moves up from there. Hmm. So um, when I have spare time, which Actually, now it's not been for a while, um, but while I was doing closure and just before that, I was spending a decent amount of time on that, and I hope to get back to it at some point. Interesting. Is this, I mean, I know there's a lot of work in machine vision. Is, this, is machine listening kind of underserved by the research community? Or? No, 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 no. There's, there's, um, you know, there's a lot of people that do modeling, and, um, and that's all interesting, but a lot of that is um, pure science, you know, pure research. And so they're working on really basic things, you know, how to make a model that responds to a sine wave the same way that they've measured the, you know, inner ear doing so. And uh, that's really important, but it it will take a long time for that to really experience these higher level things. And so uh, in some sense, um, I'm not actually that concerned with biological um, accuracy or using modeling to explain the biological system. I just need to emulate it well enough to get some of the benefits of the way it works. And so it's sort of like applied research. It's mm-hmm. not, you know, I'm not going to move research forward as a hobbyist, you know, uh, and I wouldn't pretend to. Um, 
but uh, I think the problem is extremely interesting. It's still unsolved. There are still aspects to our hearing that we don't understand. You know, the whole active component of hearing is, you know, we don't know how it works. What's, what's the active component of hearing? Um, so if you are anesthetized or dead, um, you know, the way your um, cochlear responds to waveform is exactly the way you'd expect, you know, some, some similar membrane-like thing to respond. Sure. Um, but when you're healthy and active and alive, um, you get a, a really different kind of filter response oh, from your ear. And in, in fact, um, we, you know, it's believed that there's some active control over that. And furthermore, <laughs> that you know, there, are, there are neurons that go back to the ear from the brain that actually can control it and uh, they're, uh, suppress the, its activity. And there's a, a notion in which that might be the hearing equivalent to focusing. Hmm. Um, and we all sort of seem to have that capability. You know, if you're in a room and there's a lot going on, you are able to either focus on a speaker or if you're listening to a piece of music, focus on an instrument. Um, is that related to our ability to um, sort of control our inner ear? Because hmm. um, it's definitely a feedback mechanism. That's fascinating. I never knew about that. And I, and I got to say, like for me personally... You know, this bugs my wife. So my kids speak Chinese with my wife. Mm -hmm. And what it means is that in our house, because they speak English to me, a lot of times there are multiple conversations going on at the same time because they, it, we, we wind up having separate conversations about the same thing. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and it drives me nuts because, like, if there's more than one conversation going on at the same time, it, it's really hard for me personally, I feel like, compared to other people, to pick that out. And I wonder if I just need, like, ear glasses. You know what I mean? Like, somehow enhance that. I didn't realize yeah, that there so, was even a thing. Well, I mean, it's still not known whether or not your ability to separate that stuff is, you know, very much a physical thing or only slightly a physical thing and very much a higher level of cognitive thing. Hmm. Um, but the, there's no doubt there is this path back. There's no doubt that the response is, uh, is asymmetric. You know, you have these filters that are flat on one side and curved on the other. Hmm. And... Um, that's not just what you get from, you know, um, passive vibration. Mm -hmm. um, so what's, what's making that happen? Interesting. <laughs> That's really interesting. And it goes away when you anesthetize the subject or you, you know, examine the you know, cockroach, you know, uh -huh. a dead animal or something like that. <laughs> cool. Yeah. That sounds like a ton of fun to work it on. It is a ton of fun. Well, I hope you get a chance to get back and spend a bunch of time on We're All. Me too. <laughs> Everyone's really looking forward to see what you come up with. And, um, you know, I think, I hope you know that... Uh, if you ever want help on that stuff, there's a ton of people that would love yeah. to, to, to pitch in. Yeah. So put the call out. Um, and, and actually, that leads to one of the other things I wanted to talk to you about because um, you're sitting here right now. People can't see you, but you're wearing a Foo Fighters shirt. Mm -hmm. um, music is obviously very important to you. Mm -hmm. um, you brought your guitar on this trip. I brought sure. my bass. We had a chance to play a little bit last night. Um, and in fact, music is a big part of your background, right? right. That's your, your education was not a computer science not at first, no. Not at first. So, what 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 is your background? I mean, what how did you kind of arrive here? Uh, yeah, well, I studied um, music composition in college initially, and then uh, I went from that to you know playing in bands to uh, running a recording studio to putting a computer in the recording studio to saying, "Oh, that's a cool thing. I wonder how you make that go." To teaching myself C, to writing commercial music software, this is in the early days of MIDI mm -hmm. and things like that, to saying, this is 
a lot more fun and creative than composition ever was for me mm. to sort of just turning completely towards um, programming and computer science and then getting a degree in computer science and switching from being a musician to a programmer. And, and you actually taught um, at uh, SUNY, I think, right? Uh, no, at NYU. NYU, okay. Yeah. Sorry, I'm sure that's a major sin in the no, no, New York no, University no. system. Both fine. Okay, uh, so but you and you taught there. Were you? I was an adjunct, and you know, I just taught um, advanced C plus of all things. Yeah. <laughs> and object oriented programming, back in the nineties. So, do you do you think was there an important aspect of coming that route, like from music to com- the intersection of music and computers? To, I mean, obviously these days your focus is primarily on computers. What did you What did you gain from that? Like, what was the benefit of of coming that route as opposed to some other? Um, it's difficult to say. I mean, obviously there seems to be some correlation between music and programming because so many programmers are musicians. Um, for me, I I was actually able to leverage both for a while. So the first software I wrote was music software. And um, some of the first uh, jobs I had in programming were doing music scheduling systems. And then I also did digital audio fingerprinting, which is another sort of audio hearing plus computing mm-hmm. so a lot of what I had done in the first half of my career I combined both so that's a that's a synergy um, I don't know if I have any profound insights as to how computing and music interact overall uh, but I like them both <laughs> yeah well so I mean I was um, my education was as an electrical engineer with a focusing signal processing mm-hmm. and I actually think that that was that was helpful, and I wonder whether you'd say the same thing, in that it made me work on problems where I had to deal with, you know, low-level, like, algorithmic stuff, and I didn't come at it, like, say, from the web background where, you know, some of the things you're working with are higher level, and maybe you have approached performance differently. So having that background, I felt, has been helpful to me. Uh, well, certainly, the I've been very lucky to have worked on hard stuff most of uh, my career, so hard problems and really interesting, intricate and difficult systems, and that I think has been great. Um, uh, that's been really great. I don't miss C++. Though. Yeah, neither do I. <laughs> neither do I. I. I work in this other language you might have heard of. Um, that's great. Uh, so, I, I, there was one other thing that we were going to talk about, I remember now, which was um, so you recently attended um, uh, GoTo in was in Copenhagen? Copenhagen, yeah. And then Euroclosure. Yeah. And uh, we were talking about some of the lectures you said. It sounds like both conferences were really good. Um, but you mentioned one, uh, one set of lectures in particular that talked about some of the economics uh, aspect of, of system design. Yeah, yeah. I really enjoyed um, the two talks that were given by Don Reinertsen uh, at GoTo Copenhagen. He was really great um, talking about the, important, the importance of... Uh, using economic models and economic principles to assess decisions you make during product development. And he gave a good talk about that and another good talk about um, embracing uncertainty and variability in, in product development. Yeah, that was really interesting. I wonder if you could recap that a little bit because you, you were talking about this the other night and I didn't quite follow it, so maybe you could explain it for me again. Um, I, you know, I wouldn't really want to try to explain this okay. thing. I, I would definitely recommend that people um, you know check out his book, but the... The, the simplest story is um, he's warning everyone to not uh, pull back from manufacturing practice a, um, 
a fear and uh, a desire to suppress variability because obviously in manufacturing it can be very costly, but in product development it's actually quite crucial and it can reduce costs, so somewhat um, unintuitively, uh, but it's what we do. And uh, so uh, his, his, his talk basically was about several aspects of that, how to correctly assess it, the importance of measurability and the cues that you create during product development and reifying them in a way that you can see them, and um, as well as uh, things about capacity planning um, during product development, how we tend to, um, in an effort to achieve efficiency, um, have high utilization rates, which makes us at more risk um, of variability, which, which we must have, so therefore we probably shouldn't oversaturate our resources. So when, just to be clear, when you say variability, and not to try to get you to sum it up exactly, but what's the, what's the idea, what is the variability that he was talking about, I mean, what does that mean? I mean? It takes a lot of different forms, but it, I mean, certainly in manufacturing, you try to lock stuff down so you get like 100% reproducibility of process and stuff like that. And uh, that's not stuff that you can do during, during development and still end up creating novelty and coming up with new solutions and adding value, which is where what development is, right? Mm-hmm. Essentially, you're supposed sure. to be making something new. Um, but again, I would encourage people to get his book, okay. um, which you can link to. And, yep, uh, we will, yep. And I, I thought he was great. And if you ever get an opportunity to hear him speak, I recommend not missing it. Cool, well, we'll put a link to his website as well so people can check out his schedule and whatnot. Sure. People want to check that out. Um, by the way, if I can just step aside for a second and talk about the podcast itself, one thing that I haven't mentioned before and that I really want to is um, that... These so since episode four, and this will be episode something bigger than twelve. Not sure when we'll put it out, but we've had uh, cover art for every podcast. I don't know if you've had a chance to look at any of it, but it's awesome. Like we have our design team um, will produce a, an album cover for uh-huh. every episode, and I know some people just subscribe probably and they just get the download or whatever. But um, you know, you really ought to at least so the met, it's actually in the MP3 as metadata, so you don't okay. even have to go to our website to look at it. So I'm not like trying to tell people they got to go look at our website, yeah. but but some of them are I, I like them all, but some of them are really great. I mean, That's it, cool. so it's, it's fun stuff. But, so we'll have to see what we can come up with for you. All right. Um, uh, well, so I know that you um, have other things you want to do today, so I don't want to keep you too long. But I do want to give you before we before we ask you the final question, um, <laughs> I want to give you a chance to um, just you know. Uh, Mention anything that uh, you want people to hear. If there's anything you got in mind, or uh, not in particular, no. I okay. Think, uh, cool. All yeah, right. Well, I'd, I'd advocate anyone who hasn't checked out Datomic to do so. Yeah. You know, I think uh, there's a lot there, and it's a little bit different. And we're interested in getting feedback and helping people understand what it's about. So yes, I'm working on. A, as you know, I'm working on a project now where we're 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 using it and. Uh, the customer is very excited. We're very excited. So it's it's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, that's great. It's that's already great. solving problems for us. I mean, I will say that in all honesty. I mean, I know it's Rich Hickey and a guy that works at Relevant <laughs> saying this, but it really is the case that it's solving problems for us. So that's we're, pretty, we're pretty psyched. Cool. All right, cool. Well, then, of course, we've got one question left, which is what are we playing on the way out here? Uh, let's just do some classic hard rock with uh, Walk in My Shadow by Free. All right, great. So thanks a ton for your time, Rich. It was a really interesting conversation. I appreciate you taking the time. It was essentially your vacation. Um, but it was a lot of fun to talk sure. to you. Well, thanks for having time. Me. Absolutely. All right. And thanks, everybody, for listening. And we'll catch you next time on Think Relevance, the podcast. <laughs>